millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. This episode of the New Statesman podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at the New Statesman Politics Live conference on the 27th of June 2023. To pre-register for next year's conference, visit the website nsmg.live. Now, Rachel Wearmouth interviews Keir Starmer. Well, thank you for, for joining us, Keir. And um, I think last time we spoke, you were here exactly 12 months ago, almost to the day. Uh, Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister. Um, since then, we've had Liz Trust in post, um, and now we have Rishi Sunak. Um, could you take us through what your key moment of the last 12 months has been? Well, I mean, what an extraordinary 12 months. I think it was almost to the day that we were sitting here in these exact same chairs. Probably some of you were here um, having a conversation about this time in the morning. Um, and what a lot has happened in that 12 months. You know, Johnson was prime minister then. Um, we didn't know we were getting Liz Truss. Um, and then, of course, we've got now the third prime minister in that 12 months period. Not just three prime ministers, that's burning through prime ministers at a rate we've never done in this country ever before, but four chancellors in that 12 months as well, and four budgets. Um, and so that's an extraordinary um, 12 months of change, of chaos, of short-termism. And, you know, I'd be very surprised if anybody in this room or anyone in the country thinks they're better off now than they were 12 months ago. Um, so we haven't gained very much from it. Um, now, politically, that's funny in the sense it makes for great cartoons, etc. Um, but for the country, that is a very, very bad readout of the last 12 months, because that means that decision makers, particularly when it comes to investment into our country, are saying and have said to me pretty openly, look here, um, with that kind of instability, um, we're not looking to invest in the UK anytime soon. So there's a, there's a political cost to this chaos. Um, and I think there's a burning sense now that um, the sooner we're able to end this chaos and move on to the stability of an incoming Labour government, uh, the better. Um, so... I think an extraordinary 12 months. The only additional thing I'd add is this, and it's probably more about the Labour Party side of it than the government. I was very clear in my mind when I took over as leader of the Labour Party on the 4th of April 2020 that I had um, a, a huge task, but broken into three parts, which had to be played out sequentially and in order. The first was to change the Labour Party, was to recognise that if you lose that badly, you don't look at the electorate and say, what were you doing? Uh, you look in the mirror and say, we need to change. We needed to do that at pace, which we did. The second was then um, to expose the government as not fit uh, to govern 
Um, and obviously the last 12 months is sort of exhibit A um, in relation to that part of the journey. But the third part, which is really important, particularly now as we go to the, probably the last 12, maybe 18 months before an election, which is uh, the third part, which is what's the positive vision? What's the change we want to see um, with an incoming Labour government? And that's why I've spent quite a bit of this year setting out what I mean by mission-driven government and what change I expect the country to see after five or 10 years of a Labour government. So change was the first bit, expose the government that's not fit to govern, then set out the positive vision uh, of what difference a Labour government would make for the country. So okay. a lot has been packed into that 12 months. Okay. Um, I think it's probably a good time to move on to the cost of living crisis, yeah. which is obviously the most pressing issue for people. Um, and in particular, the rising cost of their mortgage. Yeah. Um, do you have a mortgage? I do. Um, and it's gone feeling, up. Feeling the plane? Yeah. Um, I'm, I, you know, and therefore, you know, I'm not pleading a special case, but um, yes. So um, we have a mortgage and, and our mortgage has gone up. Um, but I think, and obviously mortgages and the raising mortgages, what everybody's talking about this week and last for obvious reasons. Um, but we have to remember it's only the last of a number of bills of one sort or another that are rising for families across the country. This is a very, very real cost of living crisis. And, you know, inevitably, because we've just had a round of local elections that culminated in May, and now we're in the middle of by-elections, we've got quite a number of by-elections to run. Um, there's a discussion in every political party, including ours, as to what's the thing uppermost on people's minds, um, what's the issue of the day, and cost of living has been the issue for the whole of this 12 months and right now as well, because people are really, really struggling, and this is the latest. Um, and it's very important for all of us, I think, to understand how this feels for families. I gave the example of PMQs last week on mortgages, of James, who's a police officer in Selby. Um, his wife works in the energy sector. They've had a house, they've got kids, uh, they've paid every mortgage that's been due month after month after month. Now their mortgage is going up precisely because of this 400 pounds. Um, and they're gonna have to sell their house and downsize and just told their kids that they're gonna have to share bedrooms. Now, you could say, well, you know, a lot of us shared bedrooms as we are growing up or whatever it is, but it's a small example of journeys of individuals and families going the wrong way under this government. You expect, you, you buy a house, you get enough room for your kids. This is an aspirational thing. It's, a, it's where you want to go in your life. And suddenly you're going backwards. James and his family are going backwards because of the pain inflicted by this government. There are other examples of that. You know, parents who feel they can't treat their kids. Um, we won't do anything for the birthday this year. It'll be a downsized Christmas. We would go away, but this year we won't. All those decisions are being made um, around family tables, a result um, of the, the chaos and crisis this government has left us in. And I'm not going to buy the argument. Of course, we know Ukraine's a contributing factor. Of course, we know COVID was very difficult. But the UK always gets hit hardest. Uh, and that, I'm afraid, as a result of 13 years of failure to grow the economy, the kamikaze budget of last uh, autumn and the utter failure to deal with the energy crisis uh, and to run towards renewables, which should have been done years and years ago to give us the security and the cheaper bills that we need. Uh, a lot, of, a lot is made in the in the news of, of Rishi Sunak's incredible personal wealth. Do, do you think the Conservatives really understand the mortgage crisis and how it's hitting? People? I mean, I, I, I don't criticise him for his wealth. 
um, or for that matter, where he sends his children to school. Um, I do think that he is out of touch. I don't think he really gets it. I don't think he really understands it. Um, and you know, sometimes you do need to know what it feels like to sit around a table and not know how you're actually going to pay your monthly bills. It's an awful thing. I mean, I had this when I was growing up. Why do you think he doesn't get it? Because I don't think he's been in that position. But um, when I was growing up, we, my dad was a toolmaker, worked in a factory. My mum was a nurse, but then was too ill to work. And there were times when we couldn't pay all of the bills and we had to decide what we wouldn't have anymore. And we actually chose for the phone to go. And that was in the old days when you had a landline. <laughs> if your phone rang, that was it. Um, but that that is a that is a feeling of anxiety, but also, as far as my con- family was concerned, of, of shame of not being able to do something you felt you ought to be able to. I don't think he gets that. And then some of the language he uses um, in the last week has been extraordinary. I'm on it. <laughs> I'm on it. Hold your nerve. Um, or, or, or recently, telling the country to understand the economic context. The idea that people who are struggling every day do not understand the, the economic context they're in is frankly, um, you know, uh, a real evidence of just how out of touch he is. And I, and I don't think that that is enough. I think people feel, look, for heaven's sake, uh, this government is is basically sitting it out. Well, he used the um, asking people to understand the economic context in relation to public sector pay and the, the news that the government may be willing to overrule public sector peer review boards. Your shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, has, has kind of not ruled out doing the same thing herself. Is your, is your, how, how different is your message when it comes to public sector pay? Well, look, the first thing about public sector pay is we need to understand uh, why people want their wages to go up. Because for most people, their wages haven't gone up in material terms for 13 years. And if your wages haven't gone up in material terms, but every bill has gone up, there's a real squeeze um, on and the failure to grow the economy and the additional damage that Liz trusted is the, is the cause for that. But you know, I'm not going to hide from this. If we are privileged enough to come into power at the next election, and I hope we are so that we can serve our country, we're going to inherit a real mess, a very badly damaged economy, a really badly damaged economy, public services that aren't on their knees but are on their face, the NHS in particular, um, and a sense that we've got to go at pace to try to repair, rebuild, uh, and run towards the future which is available for us as a country. And Rachel's being clear that that will require us to have strong fiscal rules, which we're not going to break. But, um, you know, we, 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 we urgently need to get on with the task now of, of picking the country up, rebuilding, uh, and moving forwards. I want to ask you about um, um, the rise in inflation and what may, what may be driving it. Um, there is, there's also a school of thought that says um, excessive corporate profits may be contributing to it also. I mean, if you looked at the information from the IMF overnight, which said it looked at the last two years and how companies' profits and were being, um, companies were profiting over and above the rising cost of importing energy over the last two years. And they think that that may have contributed to inflation, otherwise known as greed, greedflation. Do you think it's a problem? Look, I, I think the single biggest driver of inflation at the moment is the energy costs. The, we are buying on the international market very expensively. Um, and that is drive, that's been driving the energy costs now for um, over a year. 
and that is driving up inflation. At the same time, you've got almost no growth um, in productivity, et cetera, across the whole of the country. And it needn't have been like this. This is why people should be frustrated and want change. Um, the way to avoid inflation being driven in the way it has been driven by energy is to have an energy strategy which actually makes you less reliant on the international market. And we could have done that. We could have done that. Onshore wind um, has been banned effectively since about nine, uh, 2015. Um, and that has been a direct cost to our energy. Home insulation that we could have been carrying out. This was started under the last Labour government. We began to do it. Home insulation, by the way, saves a huge amount of money for families. I've seen it for myself. Some of you will have seen it where the home is insulated properly. Um, the energy then needed to heat the home goes right down. The cost is gone. We started that project over 10 years ago. Cameron came along in about 2014 and said, cut the green crap. It dropped off a cliff and we haven't done any significantly for the last five or six years. That makes a big, big difference. Uh, we haven't run towards renewables. Where's our hydrogen strategy? New nuclear has stalled. We haven't had a single nuclear, uh, new nuclear station that's actually been opened in the last 13 years. All of these measures taken together would have given us um, lower bills because renewables are much cheaper than fossil fuels. Uh, security, so we're not exposed to the international market in the way that we are at the moment, and wrapped up with it many, many jobs, skilled jobs of the future. So, the, you know, we, it's all very well for the government to sort of pipe point over here and say this is the cause of inflation. The single biggest cause is their utter failure over 13 years to grow the economy, their utter failure to have any strategy when it comes to, to energy. It comes back to your opening question, which is all we've had is chop and change and chop and change, no strategy here. Um, and can anybody seriously argue that they're better off now than they were 13 years ago when this government came in in 2010? And I think for many people across the country, uh, the answer to that will be no. If you remember Gordon Brown at the end of, um, I think it was about 2008, 2009, did a conference speech where he was going from side to side, listing all the things that last Labour government had done. It went on forever. Um, and you, you could agree with all of it, none of it, some of it, but you couldn't disagree that there was a whole long list of achievements of the last Labour government. What is the equivalent after 13 years of this government? There's just nothing to show for it. The New Statesman interview with Keir Starmer continues after the break. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
the poll leads for Labour have, have been very, very good um, for, for, for months now, double-digit poll leads. But there, there are some people who say that's driven more by people's dislike of the Conservatives than it is for people going over to Labour. But when you, when you hear that analysis, does, do you find it frustrating or, do you, or no. do, you, do you think some of it may be a fair assessment? Well, the first thing is, um, you know, don't inhale polls. Um, <laughs> they're, you know, they're... they're we, 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 you know, the only votes that count in the end are the ones that go through the ballot box, and therefore, what happened in the local elections is what I study in great detail. Um, but look, we will always get this. So um, I heard Jason talk about 2019. When I took over in April 2020, most people shook me by the hand and said, "Good luck here," um, and in the next breath said, "You'll never do it in a five-year term. It's too big a job to do it." And one of the devices I've had ever since then is to, to, to try to put the noises off to one side. So the original story was you can't win. And then uh, it was you might win. And now it's you might win, but it's not you, it's them. Um, so we go through versions of this. My honest assessment is, of course, um, to some extent, um, when the government's made such a mess of the country and everybody is feeling it, um, then, of course, they're likely to turn against the government. It's an extraordinary um, reflection that having got an 80-seat majority uh, in 2019, we're now on the third prime minister with a government that is falling apart with people departing left, right and centre. So, of course, it's partly them. But it is also us. You know, we have changed the Labour Party. This is a this is unrecognisable from the Labour Party of 2019. And in a political moment like this, when people say, I'm not so sure this government is up to it anymore, what's the alternative? When they look at the alternative and scrutinise the alternative, they need to like what they see. So it is a bit of both. And if we hadn't done the change that we had done, then we wouldn't be in the position that we're in. Now, we've got more to do. I accept that. Um, we've got to go up another level. And I, that's why I put the polls on one side. Um, for Labour to get from where it landed in 2019 to a victory in 2024 requires us to be exceptional. And this is what I say to the Shadow Cabinet all the time. You cannot coast, you can't stay level, you've got to be exceptional and step up again. But if we hadn't changed the Labour Party, we would not be in the position we're in. Our task now is to, is to step up again um, uh, to be exceptional, to go on and win that election. And not for my sake, not for the sake of the Shadow Cabinet, not for the sake of the Labour Party, but for the sake of the country, because the task of rebuilding our country is now urgent. And, um, you know, we go back to John Smith. We, all we want to do is to serve, um, and the sooner we can get on with that, the better. I'd like to ask you about Brexit, as this is a, a new statesman audience. <laughs> um, would you agree that Brexit has, has and continues to damage the economy? Well, we... Yes or no, does it damage the economy? Well, I mean, lots of things have damaged the economy. It is harder to trade now with our EU partners than it was. Um, that is obvious, um, and that is a consequence. But we've left. Uh, we had a vote on it in 2016, um, and I voted to remain, but we've left, and we are now outside of the EU, and we've got to make Brexit work. Um, do I think that the current deal is making Brexit work? No, I don't. Um, it was said to be oven-ready. It's not even half-baked. Um, and the consequences being felt by businesses so, and individuals across the country. So, so, so what are you going to do to soften the deal? I, I, I do think 
um, there's room for us to move forward. The protocol was a step in the right direction, which is why, or the, the, the changes to the protocol, which is why we backed uh, the Prime Minister when he uh, came in on that. I do think there's scope for reducing the red tape and the barriers, et cetera. I know the difficulty with that. I was shadow secretary for three years. Um, but we can have and should have a better trading relationship, make it easier for businesses. I think there's scope in the educational and scientific field um, for us to work more closely together. Would and you I be think, prepared to align on standards and rights? I think that just just final thing on, on what else can change. On the security picture, I think, has changed a lot since the conflict in Ukraine. Um, because um, if you look at the EU and NATO together, you can see Europe cooperating when it comes to security in a way that um, is stronger now than it was 18 months ago. So I do think there's scope, if you like, for um, significant um, improvement in the relationship. That doesn't mean going back into the EU. It doesn't mean going into the single market or the customs union, but it does mean making Brexit work. I'd like to ask you about another one of your your policies, which is to abolish the House of Lords. Yep. Um, your um, shadow leader of the Commons, Thangham Devonair, has said that um, it won't be a, a necessarily a priority for you immediately. Um, and we've also seen other stories that, that that you would quite like to appoint a whole host of new Labour Labour peers, and and that they may we read include figures such as um, those from the old new Labour generation, such as David Miliband and and Ed Balls. Would you be willing to welcome people like that back? Well, the first thing I have to do is just shatter this myth, I'm afraid. I haven't actually, I haven't had a conversation with anyone about creating hundreds of peers. This story has come out of nowhere. Uh, it is perfectly true that um, there's now an imbalance in the House of Lords. We have many less members in there than the government does, and any government, incoming government, wants to get its business through. Uh, so, and I think people can see that imbalance, but I haven't personally discussed this um, with anyone, nor have I offered anybody a peerage um, or named anybody who might be a peerage. I think there was an interview I did where uh, I was asked, you know, do you take advice from Tony Blair uh, and Gordon Brown? And I said, yes, I do. I take advice from people who know what they're doing and win elections. And that's now been translated into somehow I'm going to put them in the House of Lords. There's actually nothing in, I'm sorry to disappoint, <laughs> nothing in this story at all. I haven't had these conversations. Okay, um, I think that's clear. Um, I'd like to sort of ask you a little bit more about um, what st what Starmerism is. Um, you've been quite open, and you've, you've said it again there that you're quite an admirer of Tony Blair um, and the the New Labour era. But when you spoke at the Progressive Britain conference um, so some weeks ago now, you mentioned that you wanted your project to go further and deeper than the New Labour did. Could you expand on what you meant there? Well, what I was getting out there is something that matters a lot to me, which is um, to make sure that the Labour Party is the party of and for working people um, and that we run the country for working people. And I think that the Labour Party drifted too far from that in the last, um, I don't know, 10, 12 years. Um, and we need to put the Labour Party back where it needs to be with working people at the heart of that. And all the change we've done in the Labour Party um, is driven by that, answering the question, how do we make this party the party of and for working people so that we can form a government um, of and for working people? And that, that, that's, in a sense, the, the North Star, if you like, of everything we're trying to achieve here. It's why um, I'm absolutely determined that growing the economy 
and growing it so that living standards everywhere in the country, not just in London and the Southeast, go up, um, and doing it in a way that ensures people have got secure, skilled jobs with dignity and respect wherever they are, with public services that work for them, are, are, are a big part of the change that we need to make as we go forward. Um, one observation I would make is that um, Tony Blair always used the word working people. Um, you've never been afraid in your, your speeches to use the words working class. Uh, it, why, why is that? I'm interested in why that is. Well, because I come from a working class family. So my dad worked in a factory all his life. That, that was his working environment. Um, I'd never known any working environment other than the factory until I left home. My mum was a nurse, sadly, then um, she was too ill to carry on. Um, so this was a classic working class uh, family. We holidayed here. We never went abroad. Um, we didn't really eat out very much because there wasn't enough money. This is not a sob story. It's just a story of what it's like to grow up working class. But, but more importantly, it gave, it gave me an insight into, one, respect and dignity and I've said this before, but it really perhaps describes it. Because my dad worked in a factory, he felt people looked down on him. And if, we, if, we was, if he was in company and the conversation went along the lines of what do you do for a living, I could see him withdrawing because he didn't... Other people would say, well, I'm a solicitor or I'm, I'm an estate agent or I work... And he'd, he would say, I work in a factory. And then there'd be a sort of gap and a pause and nobody quite know what to say to him next. And he felt this very, very strongly. And it's given me this sense of why respect and dignity in a core sense matter, not just as loose words, but in a core, core sense, the dignity of the individual. But it also gave, gave me something else, which has been really important to me, which is the ordinary hope of working class families, which is to get on in life, um, to ensure that your children have a better chance than you did. So me going to university as the first in my family was an incredible thing for my family because it was part of that ordinary hope of working class families. Me going on to head the Crown Prosecution Service was another step on that journey. It's why I gave the story of James, the police officer at PMQs last week, because that is a, you know, a working class aspiration is to get on um, and um, aspire um, and be on a journey in your life. And I carry that um, in me. And I hope, and this is why I'm not afraid to talk about it, I hope I understand it for you know, millions of people across the country who, who carry I mean, Working class families don't have this great aspirational hope that they're going to sort of dominate the planet. It's an ordinary hope. It's a very real hope. Um, and it's a hope that drives people forward. Um, understanding that really matters to me. Um you kind of touched on it there, so social mobility. Um, so, so Peter Lample, who was... Um... Uh, he went to the same same school as you, the chair of the uh, the Sutton Trust, the social mobility organisation, said that social mobility has declined since 1997. And he seemed to think that one of the most important things you could do would be to back free school meals. It's obviously a lot of people, a lot of people in your party would also want that. Are you prepared to move in that direction? Well, that isn't our policy. We've got different policies, um, for example, breakfast clubs, um, uh, where they're needed, et cetera. So that isn't our policy. Uh, you know, there isn't one silver bullet, there is a strategy which is um, to run the country in a way which uh, is of and for working people. I'd like to squeeze in one last question yep. because uh, I think um, given the news over the weekend that we really shared um, 
obviously you'll have been following like everybody else the news in Russia and the um, attempted uh, rebellion there. What's your assessment on um, the situation in Russia? Do, is this the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin and perhaps even the Ukraine war? Well, it was an extraordinary 24 hours. I had a security briefing um, in Whitehall on Sunday morning. Um, and in fairness to the government on issues like this, they do brief me on a Privy Council basis. Um, and Ben Wallace in particular on Russia and Ukraine has been um, pretty open with me in terms of the intelligence. And I'm grateful for that. And I think that's the right way to go. Um, I think the answer to the question is it's too early to say. It, it does seem to me um, something which has weakened Putin's authority. Quite where it goes and who the beneficiaries are, I think, is yet uh, to be determined. But um, certainly, I think it weakens him um, by the virtue of the fact that it happened. And secondly, because of the exposure of the truth about Ukraine um, and, you know, the part of the story, which is, look, um, Ukraine is um, not the aggressor. Uh, this wasn't a Western plot, and and that's being told the story told in Russia uh, to Russians, and that's that that that's obviously true, um, but pretty significant that it's being said. Okay, and um, that's unfortunately all we have time for. Um, so thank you very much for for, for joining us, Kim. Thank you very much. See you next time next year. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. Anush and the team will return on Thursday. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your podcast app. Watch video of our interview with Keir Starmer on the New Statesman YouTube channel. Just search for The New Statesman on YouTube. This episode was produced by Adrian Bradley and the executive producer was Chris Stone. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.